What's up, everybody? Um, my hope, um, I was praying this morning, um, before I retire, I hope that one Super Bowl Sunday, the Jets will be playing. <laughs> so I think if I stay on staff until 2090, 2084, or something like that, the Jets might finally make it. Hey, before we uh, get into today's message for today, my name is Jordan, by the way, uh, a, a Jets fan since six years old, and uh, I want to pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for your people who are with us uh, in this building and watching online right now. Father, I pray that this moment would be a time where we can hear from you, Lord, that your words would pierce through the, the chaos in our week, it would pierce through our confusion and whatever it is that we came in here with, and uh, Lord, we would have time to commune with you. God, the ultimate right, the ultimate privilege to be with you, to commune with you, Lord, I pray that this moment would resemble something like that. We ask this in Jesus, let me pray. Amen and amen. So a couple of years ago, I heard a story, and this story has stuck with me ever since I heard it. Uh, it's a story about an ancient king who loved one of his generals. Now, this ancient king had a lot of money, and one of his generals was going to get married. The king, as a sign of love and affection, told his general, hey, I will pay for your wedding. Tell my treasurer what it costs, and we will cut the check. A couple weeks later, the treasurer comes to the king, hurried and frantic, says, King, I don't think he understood what you asked him because he's requesting basically like the equivalent of like a half a million dollars for his wedding. Now, I know you wanted him to ball out, but not like that. The king looks at the treasurer and says, actually, this man does me a great honor and I want you to pay for his wedding because by requesting such a large amount, he believes that I am both good and rich and generous. Now, ever since I heard that story, to be honest, I've been very challenged by it. Challenged by it because I wondered if I ever give God the honor of uh, believing that I believe and truly live like God is both great in resources, great in his care for me, great in his supervision over me, and generous that he gives it, that his, the fullness of everything that God has is at my disposal, that I live like I expect God to hold me down. Now, certainly, I, I certainly know I can't always say that I do. Uh, one of the questions I've been kicking over in my head is, how would I live and how would you live if you were completely confident that God, right now, exactly where you find yourself, that God is with you and that God is for you. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, how would you feel if you knew and lived like God was with you and God is for you? Now, let's flip this around a little bit. How would you feel or would it be enough if I said, I will give you everything your heart desires? You can spend the next 60 seconds writing down a list of everything you want. You can get everything like a, like a genie in a bottle, but God won't be with you and God won't be for you. With all the things, with all the, whatever it was that you requested, would that be enough? Of course not. Now, make no mistake about it, life with God oftentimes, and the life of faith is oftentimes like a roller coaster. We don't know what meets us and awaits us around the next turn. But if we knew that God was generous and God was good and God had the fullness of his affection at our disposal, and that he was with us and he was for us, man, I think we would just live a whole lot differently. I don't think we would worry about the stuff that we that dominates our mind and our attention so much. The fears that plague us that we are alone, 
I don't think they would be so present. Now, we're in this series on the generous life, and specifically what our relationship with money shows us as a window into our hearts. And today I want to turn to a passage of Scripture that is both uh, simultaneously comforting and it's convicting. Uh, It's comforting because it's a passage that shows us, despite whatever fears we have, God is both great and generous. He is great in his power. He's great in his ability. He's great to care for us. And simultaneously, he's generous. But it's also convicting because it shines a flashlight into the areas of my life that I struggle to simply trust God. Now, this scripture certainly has its application to money, but you might find yourself uh, highlighting a different area of your life where you also struggle to simply to trust God. So don't be afraid to just simply to trust. So in Luke 12, this is where we find this scripture. It says, then he said to his disciples, this is Jesus talking, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or about the body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. Aren't you, much, aren't you worth much more than the birds? Can any of you add one moment to your lifespan by worrying? If then you're not able to do even this little thing, why worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today, and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you? Oh, you little faith. So don't strive for what you should eat or what you should drink, and don't be anxious. For the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, uh, when I was growing up and learning and preaching my first couple of sermons, the pastor who I was under said, whenever you see the word therefore in scripture, you should always see what it's there for. Y'all are deep. Y'all are profound. (laughs) So the scripture starts off when it says, then he tells his disciples, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. So this is just a a little bit, when when you're reading the Bible, uh, if you see the word therefore, I I want you to like go back a chapter or so and read through to see seriously what brought you to this point. So if you were to rewind this chapter a little bit, uh, it's something called the parable of, of the rich fool. And Jesus was teaching and a man comes up to him and says, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And there's a group of people who have a lot of money arguing about their inheritance. Jesus tells this parable of the rich fool, and the parable of the rich fool is basically about a man who kept on building bigger and bigger barns to stash all of his money. That with all the money he was getting, instead of being generous with it, instead of trusting it to God, instead of living on mission with it, instead of having an intention with it, all he was doing was stashing it away. And at the end of the parable, the rich man dies, and it says, you fool, your life is going to be demanded of you today. What's going to happen to all that money that you had? 
Jesus was pointing out the fact that money, as alluring and as necessary as it is in, in, in so many cases, money is not like real security. We're all going to die, and we'll never take a dollar or a penny with us. That's my encouragement for today. <laughs> but then Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says, therefore. And then Jesus pens uh, 12 of the most really intense verses in Scripture about money. But check it, his disciples were poor fishermen. So what, do we, what can we learn from just this little interaction? Jesus is, t- is teaching rich people about money, and he teaches them about its dangers to allure them and to make, the, make it almost like a, a false savior. And then Jesus turns to his disciples who have no money, and then he teaches them again about the dangers of trusting in money. What, what, what can we learn from that? That whether you got it or whether you don't, money has the power to deceive us. Money has the power to take us off track, not just in the way we live, but also in the, the trust that our heart has for God himself. And that money itself is a rival for our functional trust in God. So whether you have it or whether you don't, there is a, a real danger. Here's what Jesus is getting at in this first part. Money has an ability to blind you and to control and to corrupt you, whether you have it or whether you don't, or whether you're somewhere in the middle. It's extremely easy for people who don't have money to say like, listen, this sermon series is nice, generous life. I got it. But the way my bank account is set up, I got a check-ins and I got a savings. And the way that joke would work much better in some other contexts. <laughs> if you don't feel like you have it, uh, it's very easy for us to dismiss what generosity or what a life in managing our money looks like. Because you're like, if I had it, I would manage it differently, but I just don't have it. But I think we, we would all do well to pay close attention to money's power in our life to function uh, as something that we deeply trust in in many cases, above God himself. So I want to give a couple quick caveats before we really dig into the scripture. One, uh, whenever we talk about money, I never want people to hear this as, I should just trust God more. I think in every single arena in our life, of course we should trust God more. But if you are struggling financially, I never want to dismiss real concerns as issues of faith. So if your Con Ed bill might get cut off. I don't want you to go home thinking, man, I just need to have more faith. I need to trust in God. Yes, that's true. You do need to have more faith. All of us need to have more faith in God. Yes, you need to trust in God, but you also need to rely on the body of Christ to help you out. So if that is where you are, uh, we have a benevolence fund at Renaissance set up to help people in our congregation who are experiencing financial trouble. And if that is you, I want you to email grace at NYC. And someone will hopefully follow up with you in the next 48 to 72 hours about how we can help you out financially. And Renaissance, the reason we're able to do this is because you are a generous church and uh, you really do uh, hold us down. And we're able to, to bless people in our community and we want to do that. So if this is where you're at, don't take this and don't over-spiritualize a message. Please email that so you can get uh, some bills paid. Secondly, um, when we're talking about a message like this about money, uh, there's a tendency to look inward, and I think that's because Jesus wants us to examine our hearts. But what I don't want us to do is also to dismiss the systemic issues at play in our city, in our state, in our country, in our world that have created a financial picture for us today. So there are reasons that certain people groups were able to amass financial wealth and others were not, certainly not at the same rate. And as we talk about money, the series today, I don't want us thinking either it's systemic issues or it's personal issues. I want us thinking both and. 
Certainly today, I want us taking a hard look at ourselves and what we, our anxiety, uh, our trust in God, but I also don't want us dismissing the reality of systemic injustices that um, really create uh, economic imbalances in, in America. So those two caveats aside, I, I do want us to go inward a little bit and look at our hearts today. So verse 22, it says, then he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or about the body, what you will wear, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Now, I have a PhD in worry. Um, I haven't written any books, but I can. Um, Worry is essentially a control issue. I'm trying to control the uncontrollable. We can't control the economy, so we worry about the economy. We can't control our children. I, can't, I certainly cannot control mine. So we worry about our children. We can't control the future, so we worry about the future. We can't control our relationships, so we worry about our relationships. But worry never solves anything. It is certainly something that is uh, something that we ingest, and we think it's changing stuff, and it's only changing us, but not for the better. So Jesus is a surgeon, man. I, I love reading Jesus' teachings. Jesus doesn't leave us um, with just a teaching on what to do. He really wants us to consider and to understand the, how irrational it is for us to worry. And here's what Jesus' examples are, rhetorical questions that he asks. He says, consider the ravens. Listen, they don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. Here's his question. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Jesus illustrated his point here from nature. Birds and ravens, they can't farm. They will never grow a harvest or a crop. And this means that they don't know where today's food is coming from, much less tomorrow's. Still, they live a good life and they seldom miss a meal that God provides for them. And if God provides for them, can you not trust him to provide for you? That is a million-dollar question. Who is worth more to God, us or the ravens, Jesus posits. And he tells us that we are worth much more to God. And then Jesus continues in verse 25. He says, can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? If then you're not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. One of the, the, the craziest things about worry, when I, when I find myself worrying, and I've told myself this over and over again, like, Jordan, this doesn't work. Like, there's never been a time in my life where I said, Dag, you know what? I was having a really tough day, but check it out. I went home, I sat down, and I worried for like 20 minutes, <laughs> and everything fixed itself. It was great. Like, none of your friends have ever, have ever said that. You've never had that experience. Every single time we worry, we, we feel worse after worrying than we did before we even started. And Jesus kind of points our face into how silly it is for us to do that. That worry doesn't change anything, certainly not for the better. Jesus goes back to another example from nature, just in case we didn't get the point. He says, all right, so consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. Solomon was one of the first kings of Israel and one of the wealthiest men in the world. So Jesus is basically saying this. Look, think about Solomon. Solomon's closet was the size of five New York City apartments put together. He had every single Jordan in his collection. And he said Solomon on his best day was not clothed and as fly as these flowers of the field, which are here one day and are gone the next. 
So if that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, here's another rhetorical question. How much more will he do for you? You have little faith. You know, I, I think one of the biggest reasons that I struggle with, with worry sometimes is that in every single situation, I don't always trust that God is doing something in me and for me. That even the difficulty that I'm facing right now, that God is preparing me for something, that nothing in my life is meaningless. So Jesus asked this question, how much more will he do for you? Oh, you of little faith. Now, I think this is a perfect description that Jesus says, you of little faith. And I, I know he was talking to me and he might be talking to you as well. Things that make me, although I'm a, a person who's been rocking with Jesus for 20 years, I sometimes feel like, man, I am just a man of little faith. That I don't live with this full, bold assurance that Jesus is with me and he is for me. I think there's a couple of things about me that, that shrink my faith. And the first is that, man, I, I was having a conversation with a friend this week about where he was at. And he was saying, to be quite honest, uh, I feel that God forgot about me. I don't know if you've ever felt that way before. Like, man, God is blessing everybody else. Yes, God is in the blessing business, but he skipped over my apartment on purpose. Like, God isn't just, like, slow. He, like, no, he has forgotten about me. I think we feel this way for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, it's because we compare ourselves. And there is, I heard this one preacher say it like this, there is no win in comparison. You will never find joy, satisfaction, trust, and contentment by comparing your life to someone else's. The highway of comparison only has two exits, either pride, where you feel like you're doing better than people, or discouragement, where you will feel weighted down that your life is not as good as someone else's. So number one, I think we're comparing ourselves, and um, comparison never leads anywhere good. And if you find yourself comparing yourself to someone else, I want you to tell yourself the words of Ecclesiastes 4, that you're chasing after the wind. You're never going to catch it. Whatever you're looking for at, in doing that comparison, you're never going to find it. The second thing I think we feel that God forgot about us is what an old preacher named Charles Spurgeon once said. He said, we're prone to write our trials in stone and our blessings in sand. We're prone to memorialize our trials, put those joints in permanent ink, and we write our blessings in sand. Uh, one of the things that's been the most helpful for me is to think about how God has come through for me over the years. Now, I think if you were intentional to think about times in your life where you were anxious or worried about any number of things, or a time where you felt like your back was against the wall, or a time where God really showed up for you, and I think if you and I were intentional about doing this, man, we would find out so many times that God was there for us. And it would give us more faith to believe that he is with us and he's for us. You know, a couple years ago, I was going through like a, a period of time where I was like deeply discouraged. I don't know what the cause was, but man, I was just deeply, deeply discouraged. And I felt like God forgot about me. And it was a Sunday morning. I was preparing for the message. And I was just in the back room, like not even reading through my notes because I was just so heavy, just like weighed down. I just felt heavy. And almost as I was just like, yo... I don't even care what these notes say. I'm just going to go out there and preach because it doesn't even matter. I was feeling that discouraged. Um, one of my friends sent me a text message, and it was almost like, man, God never, God never spoke to me in a burning bush at Popeye's on 125th Street. 
But this right here, it pierced me in the best way. It was a reminder that God was with me and God saw me. He did not forget about me. If you were intentional to practice gratitude, to remember the times that God was with you and for you, it would, it would build up your faith. It would build up your boldness. In Joshua and all throughout the Old Testament, uh, the, you'll see this command to pick up these stones of remembrance, the things that God did, so that when you hit a dry moment and when you doubt whether or not God is with you and God is for you, you can look at these stones of remembrance, uh, points, reminders that God held you down. There's a scripture in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 18. It says this. It sounds a little weird at first, but if you practice it, it is one of the most healthy things you can do. It says this. Give thanks in everything, not for everything. Give thanks in everything. And if you're wondering what God's will is for your life, this is it. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That God wants us to practice something called gratitude. Now, practically speaking, for me, when I'm practicing gratitude, I literally just write out the things that I can be thankful to for God. And as I am writing these things out, I'm like, oh, wow, it's not as bad as I thought it was. One of my friends asked this question on Twitter the other day, and I just like, had to sit down and like, absorb it. He wrote the question, who loves you? Think about it. Who loves you? Now, a lot of times we feel in our life, and certainly Valentine's Day is tomorrow, um, and for, for many people, they're struggling with the reality of a desired relationship. Maybe you're in a relationship that is not what you thought it was going to be. And maybe you're not in a relationship that you want it to be. And because of that pressure, it can make you feel in a very real, real way that God has forgotten about you. But I wonder if you were to really think about who loves you. Not even just in the spiritual sense, but the people that you talk to every single day. I was in the car with my son last night, and we were driving back. And then, you know, we were talking about, you know, he wants a nickname. He wants to sound cool. And I was like, well, you, I was like, well nickname aside, you are, my, you are my beloved son. I turned around and looked him in the eye in the back seat. He said, Jameson, you are my beloved son. He said, yeah, yeah, whatever, Dad. <laughs> I said, all right, that didn't go as I thought it was going to go. I wonder if we dismiss God in the same way. Yes, I'm your beloved child, whatever, whatever, uh, but I want what this thing is going to tell me that I am. Oftentimes we feel like God forgot about us. We're not truly even conscious of the people sometimes sitting right next to us in relationship, the people that we brush off who love you. You're not worthless. None of us are. And as it pertains to money, you can pile up money from here to the ceiling, and it doesn't make you more valuable. So we, we can fear that God forgot about us. And if we practice gratitude as a spiritual discipline, it will help us to recover the faith that God is with us and God is for us. Other times, we're just afraid. Some of us have the, the courage to realize that we are afraid of certain things, afraid of certain futures, afraid of not having enough. And one of the ways I know that we are afraid sometimes is not directly, but indirectly. See, if you came in this morning, if you're watching this morning and you find yourself just being angry and you don't know what the anger is about, oftentimes anger is a mask emotion for fear and for sadness. That when you find yourself being angry and you can't really pinpoint what is the thing, if you dig a little deeper, you're afraid. We're afraid that God isn't with us. We're afraid that God isn't for us. We're afraid that if we don't have enough, we'll be alone. We won't um, 
have enough to make it or that we would be left to ourselves. Now, one of the things that I've been doing and practicing is I can't stop myself from encountering situations that would make me fearful. And oftentimes, what I normally do when I start to become aware of something that I'm afraid of, I go down a rabbit hole. And I got, man, I got an imagination. I go down a rabbit hole of all of the what ifs, what could happen if this happens, and what would happen if this happens. And before I know it, I've played it out into like 20 years into the future. And the craziest thing is, every time I, 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 I write the script like that, it never happens like I feared it was going to happen. But two, what I've done to combat that is I've started to replace what if with even if. Uh, an author named Vanitha Rendell Risner, she says it like this, replacing what if with even if in our mental vocabulary is one of the most liberating exchanges we can ever make. We trade our irrational fears of an uncertain future for the loving assurance of an unchanging God. We see that even if the very worst happens, God will carry us. He will still be good, and he will never leave us. So a lot of times we are afraid. We've, we are afraid that God has forgotten about us. And man, for some of you, you, you don't believe that God is really with you or God is really for you, or that you can take Jesus' words here to heart to not worry because you don't feel like you're a good enough Christian. Like maybe God would take care of me. Yes, maybe all of this would be true if I was more consistent. Maybe God would do all of these things that Jesus promises me he would do if I was just like a better Christian. And we beat ourselves up in these cycles of unworthiness because we don't feel like we have been good enough. The best news of the gospel is that God is good, not because you are good, but because he is good. God is good, period. 1 John 4 and 10 says it like this. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Most of us have the cart before the horse. We have it that God will love us to the degree and to the proportion that we love God, and it is the other way around. God loves us because he is good. So much so, he proves this by giving us his son Jesus. As it says in Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So, so often we have little faith. And as a result, we worry and we don't trust that God will be with us, that God will take care of us. Now, practically speaking, as it pertains to our finances, that leads us to, to hoard, to hold on to money as if it will be the thing that gives us value and security and safety. And Jesus is calling us to be generous, not to live free of money. Money has a value and a purpose, but to live free of the lie that money is the thing that gives us value and meaning and security and not God himself who promises to take care of us. So Jesus continues in verse 29. He says, don't strive for what you should eat and drink. Don't be anxious, for the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Now, this is a really profound part that Jesus is talking about. In verse 30, 30 he says, the pagans run after these things, but you, on the other hand, you have a Father. Now, this is profound. Pagans had gods. They had gods of all different kinds. They had creator gods. They had gods who were kings and princes. They had these gods who were comprehensive forces in nature. They had a whole list of different gods. But Jesus is saying the reason you're worried about money, the reason you and I are worried about life, is we're acting like we don't have a father. We're acting like we're orphans. We're living like we're at an orphanage, that we don't have anybody who would take care of us. 
So Jesus is telling us, we're looking to, to money in this case or other things to give us only what a mother or father, what a parent can give us. Now, a couple years ago, one of my friends uh, adopted a boy from uh, South Africa. And for months and months, we all prayed as she went through the laborious process of filling out all of this paperwork and all these different things to bring him from South Africa to New York. And my wife and I were part of the welcome party at JFK, bringing him into America. Everything was signed, sealed, delivered. He was home. He was now her son. A couple of weeks later, we checked in. And I said, hey, how's everything going with your son? She said, oh, things are going great, but these really weird things keep on happening. Like, we bought this kid, like, 900 toys, and she was like, we can't find any of his toys. Later, we realized that he was taking all of his toys, and he was hiding them under the bed. Even though he had left the orphanage, and it was tens of thousands of miles away, he was still living like he was in an orphanage. Because in the orphanage, you have to hide your toys or else somebody else will take them. You have to eat your food quickly or else somebody else will eat it. He was still living as though he had not been adopted, that he did not have a place. I think the reality is true for many of us. We may have been adopted by God's grace into, into a relationship with God, but we're still hoarding. We're still living in fear and anxiety like we're still in an orphanage, like we don't have a father who can take care of us. So Jesus tells us, your father knows what you need. God is a father. Uh, there's a, a quote by an old pastor, and he talks about um, the story of the prodigal son. If, you, if you've been to church 16 times, you've heard the story of the prodigal son. Uh, here's how it goes a little bit for those of you who are not up. Uh, it, it's a story about a father and two sons, and one of his sons takes and demands his share of the inheritance, and he goes to a faraway land. He goes to Staten Island, and he spends, <laughs> he spends all of the money unwisely, and he has nothing left. And then it says, one day, he came to his senses. As he was sitting there starving and eating what the pigs were eating, he says, yo, at my father's house, all of the servants, everybody has enough food to eat. So I should go back to my father's house and become a servant. This was his plan. He gets up, he puts on his clothes, and he runs to his father. And his father um, sees him from a long way off, runs to him, meets him, gives him a hug, and says, servant? No, man, you're not going to be a servant. He, he uh, calls his servants and tells them to kill the fattened calf. His son, which was dead, was now alive. And they celebrated. Now, here's what Sinclair Ferguson says about the story of the prodigal son that I think speaks to our fears. He says, although the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 is probably the best known of all of Jesus' parables, the lesson it teaches is often overlooked. Jesus was underlying, underlining the fact that the reality of the love of God for us is often the last thing in the world to dawn on us. As we fix our eyes upon ourselves, our past failures, our present guilt, it seems impossible that the Father should love us. Many Christians go through much of their life with the prodigal's suspicion. We're suspicious if God truly would love us and take care of us. So what do we do with all of this? How do we actually put Jesus' words into practice in our lives and free ourselves from the attachments that feeling like more things would give us more assurance because they certainly wouldn't? Many of us have prayed for better situations, relationally or financially, and 
after having gotten those things, we still feel just as unstable as we did before we got those things. So that's not the answer. So how do we find ourselves where we can trust in God and simply have this trust? Uh, One of the things I was thinking about is, man, I think we just have to have a childlike faith. The childlike faith which believes in what their father is telling them. This past week I was out um, traveling with some friends and I I was FaceTiming my, my oldest from the beach and he was like, yo, daddy, how did you get service at the beach? I was like, oh, it's cool. Like there's a falcon that had a, it was a Falcon drone that had a, a beacon attached to its wing, and it flew over me, and it gave me a signal. He was like, for real, Daddy? I was like, yep, that's what happened. Now, I like to have fun with my son and play around with different things like that, but his innocence to believe what his father tells him, in the realest of ways, you and I have become so jaded in, in some moments of life That when God tells us, not something silly like a drone flying over our head, but when God speaks reality to our lives, we dismiss it. How do we recover this childlike faith? Uh, I think we do one thing uh, that we see in Scripture. Um, Since we've been talking about adoption, I want us to to look at this one Scripture, and we'll close it on this, um, to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. If you and I are going to trust God and be in right relationship with God and realign ourselves with money and the situation better to God, we have to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean for you in your life, practically speaking? Uh, the process of adoption is to choose to take something or someone into your home, into your life that did not come naturally. It means that there is a process that you've undergone to bring something in from the outside. Now, I love the concept of adoption. I was a family court attorney. I practiced adoption for about seven years, and it was always the best type of cases that we did. And um, in every single adoption proceeding, they're taking photos, and everybody's happy and hugging. But there was also this one part of the adoption proceeding that got very stern and very somber, where the judge would look the family into the eyes and tell them that what you are doing today is permanent and it's binding. And check this out. There will be times in any home When you are frustrated and you wish you could undo this, this is not just an adoptive homes, this is with regular children too. And no matter how it feels, you have to stick it out. The parents at that moment don't always know the gravity of what the judge is saying. And um, one of the challenges of this concept of adoption is that adoption is not about feelings. It's about commitment. It's about taking something into your house. Um, It's about the oath. So what Paul is saying here about what it means to adopt the the mindset of Christ, the attitude of Christ into our life, is that whatever you feel about it doesn't matter, but rather to take something in, to take Jesus's understanding of the world and to put it into your life and to start building your life around it and trusting that one day it's going to feel and make its way, make itself at home. Now, what I also know to be true is that when I follow up with parents years later, their adoptive child, 100% of the time, is the joy of their lives. They love that child. They, they, couldn't, they would never in a million years undo it, even if there were difficult times at first. That what started as forced and intentional now feels natural and organic. Now, the problem with us in our spiritual lives is that we believe that everything has to feel good the first way, the first on its way down the first time. And that we use as a litmus test whether or not we will follow something based on how we emotionally feel connected to it at the moment it is presented to us. 
That is not the way that God wants us to operate. God wants us to adopt the mindset of Jesus Christ, that when he says don't worry, he wants us to put things in practice and not to worry, and to trust with a childlike faith that he is exactly who he says he is, and he is for us exactly like he says he is. Now, the, the best way that I know how to do this in my life happens through repetition and using Jesus' words to frame my life. One of these things is found in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, if you grew up in Catholic school or in, in church in any way, um, you may have said this prayer. And I try my best to pray the Lord's Prayer daily. And it starts off by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he says these things. Your kingdom come. Your way of doing things, not mine. My kingdom, I want it to go, and I want your kingdom to come in my life. And then Jesus says the scariest line in all of Scripture to me, your will be done. As I find myself rehearsing these words, God, your will be done, I find myself letting go of the attachment that I have to the future that I imagine. And I find myself also allowing the power of God's invitation to come into my life that God wants to do a new thing in my life, and he wants to do a new thing in your life. So I want to close us today, actually, with the Lord's Prayer. If you would stand with me and uh, sing the Lord's Prayer, say the Lord's Prayer alongside me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us of our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours, Lord, is the power, the kingdom, and the glory forever and ever. Amen and amen.